Okay, so a lot of folks missing today. Boy, they're missing out, I'm telling you, but, uh, but we uh, love them, and we hope that they're somewhere on vacation and somewhere in various locations. We're just praying that they uh, have a good time wherever they are, but that they return again next Sunday. We're glad you're here with us, and let's jump into the Word together. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. I need my timer, I need my timer. And we are looking again at verses 18 through 25. It needs a battery. And this is actually part three, part three of this message. So what I'm going to do today is I have actually a lot of material, like that's a surprise to you, but uh, probably more than I normally do, so this should be interesting. And my wife, what she's doing is, because today's been kind of helter-skelter here, um, thank you so much. I, um, it's good. I have a timer, <laughs> and you guys probably think I don't honor it anyway, but I do, um, I do actually try to use it and, and stay consistent with it, but sometimes we go over. Anyway, so here we go. You ready? We are in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. By the way, using one of those blue Bibles, that's page 1015, I believe, in those Bibles. So let me talk a little bit about uh, the context. Uh, the context. The theme... Uh, of this whole section that we've been in is of our witness to a watching and unsaved world, this section here in 1 Peter, which is why uh, we titled the sermon, Our Witness in the Workplace. So, and you can see it in the previous section that we were in is the context. Uh, In chapter 2, verses 13 and through 17, there we looked at living in subjection to the governing authorities, living in subjection to the governing authorities, and by doing so, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so there is this this theme that we are to be aware of those watching us in the world and watching our conduct, and our conduct can have an impact on them, either for the good or for the bad. And in that case, we are to live in submission to the governing authorities so that those who say that Christianity is a rebellious sect or form will be found to be foolish because these people are submissive to authority, not rebellious to the governing authorities. And then the following section, right after the section that we're in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter addresses, and we haven't got to this yet, but the potential impact of an obedient wife on an unsaved husband. Again, the wife's witness before her unsaved husband or the watching world. And it even says there that the husband may be won without a word by the good conduct of their wives. Okay? So all of this flows naturally out of this uh, witness before the world or how we live flows out of chapter 2, verse 12, which we've already dealt with, where there Peter instructs his Christian readers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among the unbelieving world honorable. Okay? Thank you, sweetie. So again, it's just one of those Sundays where we're having all kinds of fun stuff happen here. But um, keep your conduct among them honorable. In other words, you, you, it's not just keep your conduct honorable, but keep your conduct among them. There's an awareness of the world before you and how you are to live before them. And honorable, if you remember, if you were here, when we looked at that word, it really means lovely, beautiful, conduct that is attractive and winsome or appealing. Uh, one writer said, conduct, conduct that impresses even the most skeptical. They look at that and they go, wow, that, that is something unique. That is unworldly. That is supernatural. They may not understand it. They may not even agree with Christianity, but they see the Christian, they see him in his conduct, and they go, there's something about that. It is winsome, and it is attractive. And so I had titled that message, Living Beautifully Before the World. And really, after that verse, what's flowing out of that is what it looks like to live beautifully before the world in different situations, whether it be subjecting to the governing authorities, whether it be living uh, as a wife, a believing wife with an unbelieving husband, which we haven't got to yet, or where we are now, what it looks like in the Christian's workplace to live beautifully before the world, okay? So, in this passage, Peter speaks specifically to Christian servants or household slaves, household slaves. And we've, 
We've addressed all this, but I'll, I'll address a little bit of it again just to bring the whole thing together now because this will be our concluding message on this section. As I told you, the institution of slavery was a, a deeply rooted part of the economy and the social structure of the Roman Empire. Uh, one writer says that in Rome and the larger cities of the empire, slaves made up a majority of the total population. They, and and they, they served, it was certainly different in some ways than American slavery as we know it. Uh, these slaves served in many different ways. They, they may have functioned as managers, doctors, nurses, teachers. Primarily, the economic engine was driven by a slave-master relationship of the first century, in the first century under the Roman Empire. So that's where we are. That's who he's addressing. And now let's read the text, and we'll do a little more review, and then we'll pick up where we left off, which is the last section here, or the final part where Peter refers to Christ in his example. So beginning in verse 18, if you'd let your eyes follow along as I read. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, or as I told you, conscious of God would be another translation, when one is mindful of God, conscious of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uh, a commendable, this is commendable in the sight of God. This, is, this finds favor with God is another way to translate that passage as we've already talked about. And I didn't bring this up last time, but I'm going to bring it up this time. When we looked at verse 20, and if you could pop that back up on the screen, that would be awesome. Thank you. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, the, I just want to point something out to you. In the original language, for it, for it is not there. It's not in the Greek text. Um, it may be implied. Peter may have in mind suffering specifically for the right one does. Like There's a connection. But it's not there, and I think it's better to understand that this is a reference to the general situation of doing right and suffering. You're just doing right, and yet you still suffer. Not necessarily because of the right that you're doing. It could include that, certainly. But the one is doing right, and yet they're suffering. It's unjust suffering. They shouldn't be suffering. The NAT translates verse 20 this way. I like its translation better. I think it's more accurate. But if you do good and suffer, and so endure... This finds favor with God, okay? So a little review to bring everything now together, hopefully. In verse 18, we find, we just read it, the difficult command, the difficult command. Servants or household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. And I've said this to you before, but just the idea of being submissive to authority is hard enough for us to embrace at times, but Peter goes farther. Be subject to your masters with all respect, okay, but not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, the unjust. That raises the level of difficulty to, to a higher, higher level indeed. And the word unjust, this is all review, means basically morally crooked, the Greek word, that's what it means, morally crooked. It describes those who turn away from what is morally right and fair. It describes immoral behavior, but listen, it does not necessarily include illegal behavior. Illegal behavior, which is a distinction that I think you need to make, and it's worth making as we begin to try to apply this text to our current historical context. So he's not saying illegal behavior. He's talking about immoral behavior. A, a boss, a master... That was immoral, unjust, morally crooked. And I say that because Christians are not forbidden from seeking legal recourse against a boss if they have it. They're not forbidden. They're free to do that. In other words, they are not forbidden by God from going to the proper authorities and seeking help or justice when the legal rights they have under the law of the land have been violated or trampled on. That's not, Peter is not saying, it doesn't matter what happens to you. 
I don't even, I don't care if your, your master acts illegally. I don't care. You continue in subjection to him. That's not what Peter's saying. That's not what he's talking about specifically. And we'll, we'll look at why he's saying that, but I just want to make that point clear. Because when we get into our own context and we begin to apply this to our work situation, I don't want you to get the idea that your boss, if he walks in on Sunday morning, I've said this before, and beats you because you were late, that you then, in accordance with the Scriptures, should continue in submission to him. Okay, Because that would be illegal activity in our context, under our law, if your boss beat you. Yes or no? Yes or no? So, just so you know, if your boss beats you, being a good Christian does not mean you just take it and continue working for him, okay? Now, certainly being a Christian means you don't strike back. There's, of course, but you also, I think, would be appropriate that, in that case, that be reported if you have that kind of situation, right? Because that's what you're allowed to do under our law. You're not acting illegally, okay? So, but Peter here is not talking about a master. That's what I'm pointing out, acting illegally or against the law, but rather immorally, unjustly, unfairly. Okay. This is a reminder from before. One writer put it this way. He said, It would be wrong to think that the lot of slaves was always wretched and unhappy in the first century and that they were always treated with cruelty. That's, that's not the case, certainly, but because many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family. We talked a little bit about this, but primarily uh, the slave population started with Romans conquering, their conquest, as they brought a people under them, some of them, many of them may have been enslaved, and then those slaves gave birth to children, and in those households, those children grew up under the institution of slavery, and it, be, it became a gigantic slavery population within Rome. And they became part of the family, trusted members of the family, but still, but still, they were slaves. They had that category, that status. But as I said, they may have been trained, doctors, nurses, teachers, so a lot of difference between what we, we uh, experienced here in, in America and the abomination that that institution was. So many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family. But listen, as the writer says, one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person but a thing. Under Roman law, a slave was not a person but a thing. Therefore, they had no legal rights whatsoever. They had no rights under the law. For that reason, there could be no such thing as justice where a slave was concerned. And for that reason, there could be great abuses that took place uh, by a corrupt or immoral or unjust master and his slave. So what are you to do if someone in authority over you... So understand, in their context, the master was not acting illegally, but he was certainly acting immorally. But what, what do you do if someone in authority over you acts against you badly but not illegally? As was the case with Peter and the context there with the slaves and the masters. Right? There, of course, can be no legal recourse. If it's not illegal, there's nothing you can do about it legally. So then what? What do you do, Christian? What do you do? And we talked about this. You're in our employment situation. Your boss can certainly do something to you or behave in a way that is unjust but not illegal. Yay or nay? Right. There's plenty of room for unjust behavior, unfair behavior, harsh treatment that doesn't rise to the level of illegal even within our own context and employer work situation and complex context. So what do you do? Hmm? Repay evil for evil? Seek vengeance? Be insubordinate? Is that what you do? Not if you're a Christian. That is what people do, beloved. That is what people do. When they are treated unfairly or unjustly, whether it be in the workplace or any place, but certainly in the workplace, when a boss abuses his power, but it doesn't rise to the level of legal, or he does something unjust or unfair, often, what is the response? Forget that guy. 
Boss is a jerk. That's what we've been, right? We've been talking about that. So, yeah, I'm not going to work hard for him. I'm not going to do what he says. I'm going to extend my lunch. I'm going to steal. I'm going to talk bad about him. I'm going to be rebellious. I'm going to give him a hard time. That response is a very common response, but it is not to be the response of the believer, of the follower of Christ, which we'll see in a second. See, this passage, like I said, is generally applied to employment in our modern-day context, which is appropriate to do. However, again, I want to point out that we are not slaves living under the Roman Empire and working for a master. Okay? Masters beating or mistreating their servants, even without just cause, was not illegal under Roman law in the first century. Century. Morally wrong? Yes. Yes. Morally wrong? Yes. And practically very foolish? Yes. In fact, it was discouraged by some for that very reason. Listen, don't be beating your slave when he doesn't, I mean, he's done nothing wrong just because you don't like him because maybe he's a Christian or something. Don't do that. It's just going to make your life more difficult. But it was more of a pragmatic approach. You know, don't do it because your slave won't serve you as well. Okay? But it wasn't illegal. But as I said, it's clearly not legal in our country for an employer to beat or physically discipline his employees. Yes? No or yes? Just so we're all on the same page. I think I've seen it. I'm not kidding. I've seen it back in the day. I've seen it come close. But either way, it's not legal. It's an illegal matter. So we just need to understand the historical context when we're going to apply this passage. Otherwise, I think we could over-apply but it certainly can be applied. And as I said, there can be various ways that we might experience unfair or unjust treatment that's not illegal in the context of our employment. And when we do, how are we to respond before a watching and unsaved world? They're watching, beloved. Does Christianity make a difference at all? Does it? Or are they just like the world? Does Joe Christian behave like Joe Devil? And Peter is calling us to be aware that they are watching and we are to live in a way that points them to Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel to transform a sinner and a rebel into a saint and one who is obedient to God no matter what the cost. And let me also add this, that we could apply the principle Peter teaches here to basically any situation where unjust suffering occurs, okay? So this doesn't have to be limited to the work situation. You can apply the principle to any situation where unjust suffering occurs. So if you're thinking, I'm not an employee, so this doesn't apply to me. No, certainly it also, in extension, applies to you as well. So in verse 19, Peter gives the general principle, this is still review, that stands behind the challenging command in verse 18. And then, as I've explained already, in verse 20, he simply elaborates on or fully, more fully explains that principle in verse 19. So what is the principle behind the command to be in subjection, servants, to your masters, not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust? What is the principle behind that command that Peter uh, issues? It is this. That when the Christian looking to, leaning on, and trusting in God, that's all included in that phrase, being mindful of God or conscious of God. When the Christian looking to, leaning on, and trusting in God perseveres in doing good even while enduring the sorrows of unjust treatment, as opposed to retaliating or seeking revenge, or turning to insubordination, or rebelliousness, or choosing to sin against the one who is sinning against them, this finds favor with God, or is commendable to God. That's the principle. When you behave this way, as opposed to this way, this way finds favor with God. And this way says you persevere in doing good while enduring patiently unjust suffering. You continue to submit yourself to this unjust master. You continue to behave well and do good and do right regardless of the wrongdoing of this one who has authority over you. You with me? And why? Because it finds favor with God. It's praiseworthy to God. And beloved, knowing what is pleasing to God 
is truly meaningful to the Christian. No or yes? Yes, because the Christian, having been born again, has been reoriented to desire and want to do that which pleases the Lord. To live his life for the glory and honor of God. Yes? Yeah. Otherwise, why even bring that up? It would be a reason that falls on deaf ears. It would be to the unbeliever. Yeah. If I gave that advice to the unbeliever, yeah, if I said, okay, this is what you are to do, and the principle here, you're to do it because it finds favor with God. What do I care? I don't care what God thinks. Now, they may not state it that way, but they may. I don't, I have, their desires haven't been changed. They haven't been redirected. They haven't been born again, regenerated. They haven't been made a new person in Christ. They care not about what God cares about. But the Christian does care. He does care. Not because he and of his own moral goodness cares, but because God has made him a new man or a new woman, reoriented him, his mind, his heart, given him the spirit of God that has caused him to look and see things differently. And of course, beloved, of course sin gets in the way. And all too often draws us away from that good desire. Yes? Yeah. But nevertheless, it is a desire now living in us if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's been placed there by God. And that's why we have an ongoing battle inside of us. Anybody familiar with that ongoing battle? It's a real battle, beloved. We have a set of new desires, but we still have this old man that we are looking to rid ourselves of. Okay? And it's coming. The completion of what God has started is coming. But right now, there's a battle in us. And so we have this desire to please God, and sin says, no, come over here, come over here. No, I, ah! Yeah. And so the battle is real. But thank God there's a battle. Otherwise, there'd be no battle. We'd be living in darkness. Our focus would remain fixed on ourselves. That's the unbelieving world. Their focus is on them, themselves. But the Christian's focus now is on God and sin always trying to draw them away from that focus. Now, in the remaining verses of this section, Peter turns his Christian reader's attention to the incredible example of Christ. This is a difficult command. But he brings out the example of Christ, just another tool for these, these weary Christian readers who are unjustly suffering. And we talked about it. It may be directly because they're Christian. And their unbelieving masters despise them just for that. Not because they're doing anything wrong. They're actually, if they're living as Christians, good employees and yet, they're getting punished. What is he to do? Submit, Peter says, for this finds favor with God. And now let me talk to you about our great example who is Christ. And let me talk specifically to you, Peter says, about how he handled unjust suffering. And that's where we pick up where we left off from last week. Beginning in verse 21. So look back at the text with me if you would. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who's that? God, God the Father, His Father. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is good stuff, beloved. Good stuff. So verse 21. For to this you have been called. We'll break the passage down now. The to this, 
looks back to what Peter, in support of verse 18, had just laid out in verses 19 and 20. So to say it again, for the sake of just repeating it because it's helpful, as Christians, we have been called by God the Father to, while putting our hope and trust in Him, to persevere in doing good or doing right even while suffering unjustly in this life. And why have we been called to that? Because that is exactly what our righteous Lord and Savior did when he patiently endured suffering for us, leaving us an example for how we, as followers of Christ, are to live in this messed up, broken and hostile world. Beloved, we are to live for God regardless of the circumstances. We are to do that which pleases Him even when it is difficult or unpleasant. Huh? We are to follow the example of our Lord, the beloved Son of God the Father, the one in whom the Father is well pleased. Matthew 3.17. Now, we'll come back to the text, but I want to consider some other ones. For just a moment, I want to look at something that Jesus did and said that is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. So you can turn there or you can look up on the screen. But John chapter 13, John chapter 13, let me just read this quickly to you, beginning in verse 12. You might remember the story if you've read it before. When he, that is Jesus, had washed their feet, that is the feet of the disciples. So this is a common custom. As you're walking, you gather dust on your feet because they don't, you know, that's what the roads are, all dusty. And so practices, the servant of the house would come and, and you know, refresh you by washing off your feet. And then you would, uh, you know, do what you're ever going to do in the house. Now Jesus is doing this. So Jesus puts on uh, the servant, uh, he takes off his coat, he puts on the servant material, and he now is washing the feet of his disciples, okay? It's a servant's job. So he said, he put, out, put on his outer garments and resumed, so after he'd done that, he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. So the act has been performed. And he said to them, to his disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, Lord, master, okay? Master, sovereign. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, okay? It's an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Who's the master in this case? The Lord Jesus. Who are the servants? His disciples. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. They'll be his messengers. He will be the one who sends them to carry on his message. So what is Jesus doing here? He's modeling to his disciples biblical love and humble service. Okay? He's modeling it. He's setting the example for them. But notice what he says, a servant is not greater than his master. One writer says, not to follow the example of Jesus is to exalt oneself above him and to live in pride. No servant is greater than his master. In other words, if the master is doing these things. Do you think as a servant you aren't to do these things? Really? Because no servant is greater than his master. That's the idea. Yeah, you're right. I'm your teacher and your Lord. And I have done these things. Why? To set an example. If I do them, you too are to do them. So thinking back to our text then, If our master's example, as Peter pointed out, was to continue to do good even while enduring unjust suffering, 
okay? Then who are we to think as his servants that we can respond to unjust suffering however we choose? Or in an unrighteous way? Or in a way contrary to the way God has called us to? You with me? Or to think that we don't have to even endure any unjust suffering. That is prevalent in our society. Like, I'm, cra- I'm going to tell you why that's prevalent in part. In part. It's because of false gospel preachers, prosperity gospel preachers, who say things like this to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life should be awesome. And by that I mean you're rich and you're healthy and you're well off and everything else. Things should be going well for you all the time. And if they're not, it's just because you lack faith or you haven't given enough money to our ministry. It's one or the other. It's probably the money part, though. So give more. Plant your seed here. And things will go well for you because that's what God has promised. And so that stuff spreads like a virus and a cancer. And Christians start to pick up on that nonsense. And they think, I don't, there must be something wrong because I'm suffering unjustly. Maybe I don't have enough faith. I don't think this is right. Or maybe I shouldn't suffer unjustly. I ha- you have no right, Mr. Bad Boss person, to be treating me like this. Don't you know I'm a child of God and things should always go well with me? Now maybe... <laughs> The employee doesn't say all that, but maybe these kind of thoughts run through their mind because of bad thinking. My goodness, if the master suffered, do you think his servants won't? And suffered unjustly on top of that. Do you think, it, you think the servants are going to live at a higher level and, and, and be able to avoid all suffering if the master himself took it upon himself? Huh? Unjust suffering, beloved, is part of the Christian life by design. God uses these things to mold us and to shape us into the people that we need to be to help us look more and be more like Christ. Here's another passage worth meditating on. I'm sure you'll enjoy this one too. Luke 17. Another of the Gospels. Luke 17 and verse 3. Here's what it said. Pay attention to yourselves. This is Jesus. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Oh, well, we have a hard enough time with that. But here we go. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. Time out, Jesus, time out. Wait a minute. Now, he didn't, they didn't do it this way, but come on. That's, no, I don't, I don't. Verse five, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like, oh man, come on, Jesus, come on. I'm, I'm reading that into that phrase, increase our faith, but it, it is that basically. And I know that because of the way the Lord responds. He says, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The point of that is, it's not faith that you need. Give me a break. You could have a tiny little faith, and you could move mountains. I'm calling you to just forgive when someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness. You need to obey. How do I know that's what he's saying? Because look at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Okay, yeah, that is how it worked. Nine. Does he think, does he think the servant, because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You get that? That's heavy. You don't be sitting here crying out for more faith. Just do what I say. You are my servants. I am your master. Forgive. 
And if your brother comes to you and sins against you seven times in that day, you forgive him seven times. And I'm not going to thank you for it when you're done doing it. It is your duty. As my servant, I am your master. Different type of Jesus, huh? That people are, people are used to sometimes. The Jesus they get is a different Jesus sometimes in places. But this is Jesus right here, right in the scriptures. This is him talking. Now, looking back at our text, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That's what it says. Do you see that word example in your Bibles? Leaving you an example. Fascinating word. It's a term, according to one scholar, that refers to a writing or drawing that was placed under another sheet to be retraced on the upper sheet by the pupil. Okay, so imagery. Think of a child learning how to write the letters of the alphabet correctly by tracing over them. You get it? Got the A's, he puts a piece of paper on top, he traces the letter. That's the idea. That's what the word uh, implied. He goes on to say, the example was not left merely to be admired, but to be followed line by line, feature by feature. That's, that's good. You're like, oh yeah, you know, Jesus is an example. That's not what it, that idea, like he's just held up over there. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, that, he's a good example of what I should do when I suffer unjustly, yeah. No, no, the idea of example is that you're tracing him line by line and feature by feature, that's the idea. It's an example for you to, to follow, which is exactly what it goes on to say in verse 21. He's leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. It's an example to be traced. It's an example to be modeled in the Christian's life. Not an example just to say, oh, admired from afar. You with me? Beloved, as Christians, we are to follow in our master's steps. We are to walk as Christ walked. It's funny. I think that's somewhere else, too, in the Scriptures, isn't it? 1 John 2, do you remember that? We went through that eons ago. In verse 5, by this we may know that we are in Him. How? In Him, in Christ, connected with Christ, saved, beloved. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way or manner in which he walked. A commentator uh, discussing this, he says those who have accepted Christ as Savior are challenged to follow his example, right? His example of what he does when suffering unjustly. But I really like his next statement that he makes. He says this, his, the footsteps we are to follow, Jesus' footsteps lead into the valley of humiliation, even to its lowest and darkest depths but they also surely and confidently lead through the valley, ending at the throne in glory. Huh? That's beautiful. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, come follow me into hell. He says, come follow me into glory. But the pathway is through steps of suffering, in part, and suffering righteously. So let's take a closer look at Christ's example for us to follow when it comes to suffering unjustly. In the verses that follow now, Peter draws on the words from Isaiah 53. As you compare, if you read Isaiah 53, you can see. He doesn't necessarily exactly quote it at times. He just draws from it. Sometimes he does. But he's looking. You can tell he's reading Isaiah 53 or he has it in his mind and he's writing out this instruction, these instructions to his Christian readers. And the focus in Isaiah 53 is as you may know, the suffering of the servant of the Lord. The suffering of the servant of the Lord. It is a passage that prophetically looks forward to the divine person and work and saving work of Jesus Christ, who though innocent, patiently endured unjust suffering in order to do the great good of saving undeserving sinners. Isaiah 53. So he says in 1 Peter 2, 22, and as I said, you can look at Isaiah and compare him, but he draws this from Isaiah 53, 9. He says this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay? Another way to put that is no lies ever came out of his mouth. 
Now, listen, being sinners as we are, both of these statements are really astonishing. They're astonishing. I think if we consider our experience, no man has ever, this is what it's saying, no man has ever been as innocent as Jesus Christ. He had done no wrong. Huh? He had done no wrong. I mean, I, as soon as kids learn, as soon as kids learn how to A, speak, and B, the consequences of doing something wrong, and then they are asked by mom and dad, did you do such and such? What do they do? They lie. You don't have to instruct them. You don't have to teach them. It's just natural. They lie. He's never lied. He's committed no sin. In fact, I like the original word order for the, of the Greek for this first part of verse 22. I like it because it reads like this. Sin not he did. It sounds like Yoda, I know. But I like the way Yoda talks. It's not an endorsement of Star Wars. Don't attack me or anything. I just like, I like, sin not, he did. Sin not. So verse 22 makes it clear that the sufferings of Christ, as were the unjust sufferings experienced by Christians in Peter's day, were not at all deserved. Christ was entirely blameless. Huh? You ever, uh, you know, I, I did this, and I'm just going to confess it as a father. There were times when I wasn't sure that my child had done something wrong. In this particular case, maybe, you know, there's conflicting stories, and I'm punishing them. But I find some comfort in the fact that likely they've done something wrong at another time <laughs> that I did not catch them for. And I'm not saying that is the way to parent. I'm not. I'm just making a confession now. It's like the cop that pulls you over. Well, you know, they're probably thinking, well, maybe, yeah, maybe not. I'm sure there's lots of other times you did something illegal. But that is not Christ. That is not Christ. Never. Never once. He was entirely blameless. But how did Jesus respond then, this innocent one, to such unjust sufferings? How did he respond? Remember, he's our example. He is that, he's the one we are to trace out. We are to model. Well, look at verse 23. Peter turns to that now. Here's the innocent one. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Another translation puts it this way. When they hurled their insults at him, and likely, this could include his entire ministry, but likely Peter is focusing in on, on his crucifixion and the events surrounding that, leading up to that. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. What is that? One writer puts it this way. Jesus' silence and suffering is the most remarkable evidence of his non-retaliatory spirit. Since the urge for revenge can be almost unbearable when mistreatment takes place. Yes or no? Yes. Another commentator put it this way. He demonstrated his sinlessness under the most intense provocation and undeserved suffering. You get that? I mean, it's one thing when you and I are not under pressure to be good and behave well and to live rightly and not sin. Yes? You know, that's one thing. Actually, that's hard enough, but that's one thing. But then put pressure on us. Put pressure on us to sin. And unfortunately, we often cave. We often respond as we shouldn't. Another writer says this, he was struck in his face, crowned with thorns, beaten with the reed, scourged, forced to bear his own cross, and crucified. Yet through it all, he never threatened retaliation on his tormentors. What? That's the example. 
He didn't even threaten revenge, let alone carry out some form of retaliation. And I could take you there, but I won't right now. But if you remember the story in in Matthew 26, I'll just remind you of it, where they're there to arrest Jesus, and Peter decides, I love Peter, that he's not going to let this happen, so he pulls out his sword, whoosh, you know, and cuts off that high priest ear. And what does Jesus tell him to do? Peter, put your sword back in its place. Put it back, okay? And then he says to them, do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once, I guess we are going there, send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, come on. If I want to put a stop to this, I can. 12 le- like he would need 12 legions of angels. One angel would do the trick. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, I must fulfill God's will for my life. That is the good I must do. And I will do it while enduring unjust suffering. Beloved, when experienced unjust suffering, our Lord did not retaliate, but rather, according to 1 Peter 2.23, He did this. He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He's our example. So listen, instead of focusing on His unjust circumstances, which is what we do, okay, I mean, then it's just all about that and how we've been wronged. It's our total focus. We get lost in it. Instead of doing that, the Son of God focused on his Father. And he left the matter in his hands, knowing that there will be a day when all things are made right. There will be a day. There is a reckoning coming. One writer put it this way, he knew that God would judge rightly on the last day, both vindicating him and punishing his enemies if they refused to repent. Right, Because there could still be grace for them. There could still be hope if they would repent of their sinful ways. The Scriptures nowhere teach that believers can refrain from retaliation because they become stoics in suffering and put on a brave face. That's not how you do it. Rather, believers triumph over evil because they trust that God will vindicate them and judge their enemies, putting everything right in the end. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of faith, like it is with everything in the Christian life. Beloved, when it comes to suffering unjustly, Christ is our example, an example we do not simply admire, but rather one we are to faithfully follow as his disciples. In all matters, yes, in all matters, including in the matter of unjust suffering, we are to retrace him line by line and feature by feature. One writer adds this, patience such as this, speaking of Christ, No mere man had ever practiced. And then he goes on to say this, sinful men need more than a perfect example. They first of all need a savior. Oh, that is so true. So true. You and I do not have it within ourselves. We are not born with this kind of supernatural patience and endurance and perseverance and desire to do God's will no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost. We're not born with that. It's not found within us naturally. It is found within us supernaturally by the power of God, salvation, regeneration, and being born again of the Spirit of God who empowers us to carry it out. And that's what brings us to verse 24. Now he says this. He turns slightly. He turns from Christ as example, and he turns to Christ as Redeemer, Savior, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This example that I just talked about of how you should respond to unjust suffering, he's your example, Christian. He did something on that cross. He did something that you, so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness, the righteousness of God, carrying out the will of God in your life. And then he goes on to say, by his wounds you have been healed. I mean, to live to righteousness is to, to live as, as Christ lived, right? It's to live in a way which pleases God. Christ was not only our example, he was also our redeemer. By the way, quickly, the verb healed there, does not indicate physical healing. It's often taken out of context to try to prove by prosperity preachers 
that you are guaranteed healing here and now, okay? Because that's what Jesus accomplished for you here and now on the cross, healing, all physical healing. So I don't know why prosperity preachers die then, but somehow they eventually kick the bucket too. So somehow that doesn't work out. But all the while, you know, they're claiming I have health from, you know, physical well-being. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that's not the context. It indicates the restoration of divine fellowship through forgiveness of sins and all the benefits which accompany it. That's the healing that he's talking about. It's being healed spiritually. That you were, you were enemies of God, now you're reconciled to God. Your sins are forgiven. You've been healed. By the way, past tense, you've been healed. It happened. Okay? just want to point that out. You have been healed. So, Back to this, this idea, though. He did this. He bore your sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You might remember, we've had that conversation before when we went through Romans 6. If you were here, right? Where Paul preaches on dying to sin and being made alive to God so that we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are freed from it. So now that we might be slaves of righteousness, that we might live for God, that we might not use the members of our body as instruments for unrighteousness, but use them for the Lord. This is what Peter's saying. Yeah, Christian servant who's being uh, unjustly and unfairly treated, I know, I know you don't have the ability to persevere and do good in spite of this unjust master, but not in of yourself, but you do have it in Christ. He redeemed you. He set you free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. Sin says to you, punch that guy back in the face. Sin says to you, be insubordinate. Don't don't be submissive to this jerk. That's what sin does, but you no longer have to obey sin. You've been set free from sin. You've been given the spirit of God that you might walk in newness of life in a way that is supernatural, that will blow other people away and they will say, what is going on there? That is a behavior that is lovely and beautiful and I can't explain it. Please tell me what that is about. Let me tell you what it's about. It is about the power of Christ and his ability to change a sinner such as myself. He is redeeming me. He is transforming me. I submit to this master, even this unjust one, only by the power of Christ in my life. You with me? Okay? We're almost done. So I was, uh, I just catch my breath. There was this, this book I was reading. It's called One Forever, <clears throat> The Transforming Power of Being in Christ. It's a good little book. I just wanted to draw out this one chapter because it fits nicely with uh, what Peter's, just this whole idea that because of our connection to Christ, because of what he did in cross, we've been united with Christ, and because of that, we have died to sin and be, and be made alive in Christ in his resurrection to live for God now, which Peter wants his Christian readers, his Christian, these servants, having to endure this unjust treatment, to know they have the power in Christ now. They have to believe it. They have to, by faith, believe it, that they can live under this unjust suffering and persevere still in doing good. They can do it because of what Christ has done for them and in them. They can do it. They must believe. They must have faith. Okay, so he's turning them back to that. Remember what Christ has done for you. So anyway, back to this. In the book, it says this. You've probably seen the popular bumper sticker that reads, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Yes? As a statement, it gets two things right and one thing horribly wrong. If you have this on your car, don't. it's okay. Because <laughs> I know what people mean by it, but we're just examining a little bit closer. It says Christians aren't perfect, which is demonstrably true. It means clearly apparent. Okay? We know that. It says Christians are forgiven, which is also true. Praise be to God. But it has a terrible little word, just. That's not true. It's not true that Christians are just forgiven. Christians are forgiven, and they are united to Christ. I, I would go on to say they are forgiven because they are united to Christ. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God and they are empowered by God to live a new life. 
to fail to understand that reality, which many do, is to leave ourselves open to a wildly inadequate approach to sin in our lives. You get it? We're not just forgiven. We have been united with Christ Almighty. And that being united to Him has brought victory for us over sin. And now we are to live in that victory and it has enabled us and empowered us to live for God. Even, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. Such as a servant who has no other options and is being abused by an unbelieving master. It enables him and empowers him not to kill him but to live righteously before him and to continue to do good in spite of the bad of this master. You see that? And then finally, he says this in 2.25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I just, let me just quickly say this. Uh, the shepherd points to a leader and ruler. He's a leader and ruler over souls. And, and one commentator points out that the emphasis here is not on Christ's tenderness, which often comes to our minds with the word shepherd, but to his authority. His authority. And we know that because he couples it with the word, word overseer. Shepherd and overseer. And if you look in the New Testament, when the word overseer is used, it is used for those who have authority in the church. Pastor, overseer, shepherd, they all go together. Here, Paul is referring to Christ as the ultimate overseer who rules over the church. Okay, And so one writer puts it this way, conversion involves returning to Jesus Christ as ruler and Lord. And I think it's just that closing reminder, yes, you you were straying like sheep, but when you came to Christ, you returned to him as the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He rules over you. Now live under that rule. Be subject with all respect to your masters, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Live under his rule. Let's pray. Father God, a servant is not greater than his master. And Father, certainly we are, we are not slaves as, as it would have been defined in the first century living under the Roman Empire. But Father, we too, in our current context, can suffer unjustly. It is certainly possible. It does happen, and certainly in the workplace. As employees, we, this does take place. And, and Father, how are we then to respond? And, and sadly, Father, sadly, we confess that we, we, we don't always respond the way you would want us to, the way that, that is commendable, the way that finds favor with you. And we give in to our sin and, and we follow the way of the world, not the way of our master. Father, forgive us. Father, may we, may we commit to doing the things that please you because we love you and you have given us a love for you. And Father, may we have faith in you and, and in Christ and in our salvation to know that you have empowered us now to do these things. We don't, we don't need something more. We have what we need. We need to obey. Father, help us to live our lives in a way that honors you. That's what we want, Father. That's what we want. In our, in our best, that's what we want. Help us to live beautifully before this, this lost world. Help us help our lives to continue to point to you and the magnificence that is you, the glory that is you, the power that is you, the supernatural way of living that is you. 
Help us to do that, Father. And not just in the workplace, but Father, we, as I said, you know we can apply this principle of how we are to respond to unjust suffering in many different contexts. Help us to think that out well, Father. Help us to consider those things. We pray all this in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.